All right, welcome everybody. Welcome to the timeline of church history. We are on episode four, and we're going to be talking about a couple of things today. We're talking. We're starting at the year seventy-two with the martyrdom of Saint Thomas. Then we're going to go to the martyrdom of Pope Linus. We're going to talk about the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, and the Book of Acts. The persecution of Christians under the Emperor Domitian, the Book of Revelation, the First Epistle of Clement, and St. John dying. But first, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. And Lord, help us to learn to become holier by learning about your history of your creation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so timeline of church history, one of my all-time favorite shows. So we're going to start with the martyrdom of St. Thomas the Apostle. St. Thomas the Apostle was also called Didymus the Twin, and he was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. But we are specifically going to talk about his mission in, the, in India and his death. So according to traditional accounts of St. Thomas, Christians of India, the Apostle Thomas landed in Muziris, which is an ancient harbor and urban center of the Malabar coast, um, on the Kerala coast in AD 52. And he was martyred in Milapur near Madras in AD 72. The port was destroyed in 1341 by a massive flood that realigned the coast. He is believed by the St. Thomas Christian tradition to have established seven churches in Kerala. These churches are at Kodongalur, Palayur, Kavu, and I'm not, I don't know Hindu, so I'm probably butchering these names. Sorry. Koka Mangalam, Niranam, Nik. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I can't read all these names, but you get the point. You can go on to Wikipedia and read more about these places if you would like, but there were seven churches that he started. Thomas baptized several families, namely uh, Pakalomatam, Sankarapuri, Thayil, Payapili, Kali, Kaliyankal, and Patamaku. Sorry if I'm not saying that correctly. Okay, other families claim to have origins almost as far back as these, and the religious historian Robert Eric Freakenberg notes that, quote, whatever dubious historicity may be attached to such local traditions, there can be little doubt as to their great antiquity or to their great appeal in the popular imagination, unquote. So a lot of Indians believe that St. Thomas went to this particular reason, region, as you can see here, and um, evangelized this area and started seven churches. But we're going to talk a little bit about his death. According to Syrian Christian tradition, St. Thomas was allegedly martyred at St. Thomas Mount in Chennai, which is the capital of the Indian state of Tamil Nadu. 
He, that was on the 3rd of July in AD 72, and his body was interned in Mylapur. Ephraim the Syrian states that the apostle was killed in India and that his relics were taken then to Edessa. This is the earliest known record of his death. The records of Barbosa, who uh, was a Portuguese writer and officer from India, from the early 16th century, witnessed that the tomb was then maintained by a Muslim who kept a lamp burning there. The San Tom Basilica. So in this, by the time of the 16th century, uh, much of parts of India were taken over by Muslims and actually a Muslim was taking care of his tomb. So that's an interesting thing that I had never heard of. Uh, the Santom Basilica Mylapur, Chennai, Tamil Nadu, India, presently located at the tomb, was first built in the 16th century by the Portuguese and rebuilt in the 19th century. So St. Thomas actually has a basilica there uh, built over top of his tomb. St. Thomas Mount has been a revered site by Muslims and Christians since at least the 16th century. And that's interesting to me. I'm not sure why Muslims would revere St. Thomas Mount. Hmm. And I don't have any further information about that. So I will have to look into that at another time. Okay, so that is the death of St. Thomas. And we are going to move on to the martyrdom of Pope Linus. But first we have to search up Pope Linus. So let's go ahead to the search bar here and put in Pope Linus. And let's talk about him a bit. So Pope Linus was the second bishop of Rome. His pontificate endured from AD 67 to his death. Among those to have been Pope, Peter, Linus, and Clement are specifically named in the New Testament. Linus is named in the valediction of the second epistle of Timothy, and a lot of people don't know that. Um, Linus is actually named in the second epistle to Timothy uh, by St. Paul. St. Paul actually knew Linus and when they both were in Rome together. So we do not want to talk about all that. Mostly we'll want to talk about his life because that's what's important right here in this particular church history. The Liberian Catalog and the Liber Pontificalis date the Episcopate of Linus as AD 56 to 67 during the reign of Nero, but Jerome dated it as AD 67 to 78 and Eusebius dated the end of his episcopate in the second year of the reign of Titus, who was a Roman emperor from 79 to 81. Linus is named the in the valediction of the second epistle to Timothy, which we just talked about. In that epistle, Linus is noted as being with Paul the Apostle in Rome near the end of Paul's life. Irenaeus stated that this is the same Linus who became bishop of Rome, and this conclusion is generally still accepted. So most people accept that Linus, who is mentioned in the Bible, is the same Linus who became the Bishop of Rome. I believe he was the third Bishop of Rome after Peter. Uh, according to the Liber Pontificalis, Linus was an Italian-born Volterra. And a Volterra is a, um, a walled mountaintop town in the Tuscany region of Italy. So he was born in a mountaintop town in Tuscany. His father's name was recorded as Hercalinus. The apostolic constitutions denominated his mother... Claudia, immediately after the name Linus in 2 Timothy 4.21, a Claudia is named, but the Bible does not explicitly identify Claudia as Linus's mother, but we can kind of guess that that's the case. According to the Liber Pontificalis, Linus decreed that women should cover their heads in church. He created the first 15 bishops, died a martyr, 
and was buried on the Vatican Hill, presently Vatican City, adjacent to Peter the Apostle. So he was buried right next to St. Peter. It dated his death as the 23rd of September, on which date he is still commemorated. So we still remember him in the Catholic Church on that day. His name is included in the Roman canon of the Mass, and the Roman canon is basically during Mass, which um, Protestants would call is just a church service. In Catholics, they call it the Mass. Eastern Catholics call it the Holy, I believe they call it the Holy Liturgy. So there's different names for it, uh, but in different traditions have different names, but the, the idea is the same for Catholics and Orthodox and Eastern Catholics. What they do is we read the scriptures a bit, and then we have a kind of a portion of the service that is called a consecration, where we say special prayers to God to ask him to come down and change the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. At that point, afterwards, we do some more prayers, and then the people come up if they feel so inclined, if they feel uh, holy enough, because well, we're not, we aren't the ones holy enough. It is God making us holy. But if we feel like we haven't abandoned God in some way by sinning, then we go up, we present ourselves and we can receive communion. We can commune with Jesus Christ through his body and blood. That is what we believe the Orthodox Catholics and Eastern Catholics all believe the same thing. Protestant beliefs are a little different, but uh, we're talking about church history here and church history in the beginning Everybody believed the same thing, even though they talked about it in slightly different ways. There was really only Eastern and Western Christians in the beginning, which is what we're talking about here, uh, just because of the way the Roman Empire was made up. There was an Eastern and Roman Empire kind of in the two, from the 200 and onwards period, and that's when the church kind of split just because of language barriers. There's mostly Greek-speaking church and a mostly Latin church. And the Greek-speaking church kind of just did their own thing over there because the emperor lived over there. And the Latin-speaking church, well, <laughs> we'll talk about this more when we get to that point because it's a very important point in church history to figure out how things started splitting off. Right now, we're at the point where everyone is in agreement, even though they speak different languages, the apostles are still alive. Well, most of them are. And you can get an idea of what you're supposed to do based on looking right at the apostle and finding out. So there wasn't really many disagreements. And I'm kind of getting off track here a little bit. But the point I'm making is the Roman canon of the mass is when we say all the names of the people that we should be honoring. And there's a long list. Uh, and we say about 20 or so names on that list at every single mass so that we can remember them and honor them. And something that people should do, especially Catholics, is take one of those names on the list that you hear when you go to mass when you or when you're reading the mass at home for yourself and take one of those names, go to Wikipedia, look it up, Pope Linus, look up Linus, look up, um, I believe that Agnes is one of them, St. John the Baptist is one, just look them up and Kind of see what they did and see how it'll help you to live holier. Getting a little bit off track, but that is the Roman canon. It's a part of the mass. Okay, so we're going to move on to uh, Pope Linus's death. Okay, so with respect to Linus's purported de decree prescribing the covering of women's heads, J.P. Kirsch commented in the Catholic Encyclopedia, 
Encyclopedia that, quote, without doubt, this decree is apocryphal and copied by the author of the Liber Pontificalis from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians and arbitrarily attributed to the first successor, successor of the apostle in Rome. The statement made in the same source that Linus suffered martyrdom cannot be proved and is improbable. So we don't know that Linus was martyred, but the tradition is that he was. And I tend to go by tradition unless there's good evidence against it. We don't really have good evidence that he wasn't martyred and Christians have been believing that he's been martyred for you know hundreds and thousands of years. So we should probably believe that too. Another issue I have with people trying to say, oh, well, this probably didn't happen that way, especially when there is a tradition going back a long way saying that it did, is that we're further away. We can't find out more information now. The only possibility for us is to have less information than the people who were actually there. And another good point of why Linus was probably martyred is because very many Christians were being martyred at that time, like tons and tons of Christians. So it wouldn't really make a lot of sense for him to just live out his whole life and not be martyred when everyone he knew was martyred. Paul, St. Peter, St. Paul, um, St. Thomas, who we just talked about, all these people were martyred, so why wouldn't he be? Okay, moving on. For between Nero and Domitian, there is no mention of any persecution of the Roman church, and Arrhenius from among the early Roman bishop designates only Telesphorus as a glorious martyr. The Roman martyrology does not categorize Linus as a martyr, as does the Liber Pontificalis. So the Roman martyrology is the official martyrology of the Catholic Church. So we actually have an official book to say who was martyred from, you know, our traditions. And we can actually use that during our prayers in the liturgy. Each con different countries have different ones. So they're saying in some books it says he's, he's martyred, but in some books it doesn't. So let's read more about this. Quote, at Rome, the commemoration of St. Linus, Pope, to whom, as St. Irenaeus narrates, the blessed apostles entrusted the responsibility of the episcopate of the church founded in the city and whom the blessed Paul the Apostle mentioned as a companion of his, unquote. A tomb that Tor Torrigio discovered in St. Peter's Basilica in 1615 and which was inscribed with the letters Linus, was assumed to be the tomb of Pope Linus. However, a note by Torrigo rec rec records that these were merely the final five letters of some unknown longer names, such as Aquilinus or Annalinus. A letter on the martyrdom of Peter and Paul was attributed to Linus, but in fact, it was determined to date to the 6th century. Despite the absence of recent corroborating evidence, presum presumably the Liber Pontificalis is correct, in asserting that Linus was buried on the Vatican Hill adjacent to Peter the Apostle in what is now known as the Vatican Necropolis, uh, which is just a place where uh, there was an archaeological dig and they found, you know, different things there. Uh, and that's beneath St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. So you can or cannot believe, it's up to you, that Linus was martyred or not, but it is... They he died around this date and we can't be sure whether it was a martyrdom or if it was something else. So and that was around 76. So either Pope Linus died of natural causes or he was martyred around the year 76. So that's what we're talking about there. And it's up to you to believe which whichever one makes you older, you can believe because we just don't have enough proof to go one way or the other. But it is interesting how 
experts kind of study these things. And I really love it that people are so interested in they go and they try to find the original sources and things. It's, it's excellent. It's very fun. Just like I try to do this podcast. I'm no expert by any means, but I love talking about things and I love how explaining and trying to understand how that you can become holier based on anything you come into experience with. Now let's talk about the gospel of Matthew and how it was completed in the 80s, AD 80s. The gospel of Matthew, um, also called uh, Matthew or the gospel according to Matthew, is the first book in the New Testament and one of the three synoptic gospels. And and the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they include many of the same stories, often in a similar sequence. Okay, that's what synoptic means. It tells how Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, rejected and executed in Israel, pronounces judgment on Israel and its leaders, and becomes the salvation of the Gentiles. And we all know about the Gospel of Matthew, but let's read a little bit more about the historicity of it because we know about the book. We can go in the Bible and we can read it. So let's go down here to, uh, let me see, chronology, hold on, structure, composition, setting. Let's look at setting. Okay, yeah, this talks a little bit about the history and you can see over here a chart, which is very interesting that shows the relationship between the synoptic gospels. And over here, we have that there's 3% that is unique to Mark, 3%, that's the brown. And then we have 18%, which is Mark and Matthew combined. We have about 3%, which is Mark and Luke combined. And then we have, look at this huge number, 76% of Mark is exactly the same as 46% of Matthew and exactly the same as 41% of Luke. So Mark is mostly a combination of these other two books. Now down here we have Matthew and Luke kind of copying off of each other. It's a double tradition, about 20% each. Over here, Luke has 35% unique because he went and interviewed people personally, like he interviewed the Virgin Mary and he interviewed a few other people and he had dealings with Paul. So he had some information other people didn't have. Matthew similarly had information that was unique, about 20% unique to him. So this is a very interesting chart about the relationship between the synoptic gospels. And I love talking about things like this uh, because these are things that you are not going to get from the Bible. The Bible is great. And you should definitely read the Bible, read it every day. Okay. However, we do need to look at these things about the history of the church and things outside of the Bible. And I think it is very interesting to kind of talk about these, these different things that you're not really going to learn directly from the Bible. The Bible is good for becoming holier and holier, but God gave us a whole, we have it over 2000 years worth of history of Jesus, uh, Jesus work in the world right now. And we have the Jewish work that, God the Father and the Holy Spirit and the, the Trinity did with the Jewish people. So we have all this history, just history only, that we can look at and become holier based on what God did. Because God gave us the Bible, but he also gives us history to remember, to look at and say, hey, hmm, that's a reason to be holier. Okay, so. Okay. 
The Gospel of Matthew is a work of the second generation of Christians for whom the defining event was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans in AD 70, which we talked about in episode three. So go back and check out episode three if you hadn't had a chance. So that was because of the first Jewish Roman war, which we did talk about in episode three. From this point on, what had begun with Jesus of Nazareth as a Jewish messianic movement became an increasingly Gentile phenomenon in evolving in time into a separate religion. Now, um, the way they say this is a little strange, evolving into a separate religion. That's not exactly what happened. So the purpose of it was definitely a Jewish movement. But the purpose of Jesus coming was to bring the new covenant from the very beginning. He said that, and you can read in the Gospels that that was the case. Uh, a new covenant of the same religion. But we wouldn't say that Christians are practicing Judaism because it's a new covenant. Judaism had their covenant, which is still in effect. And Christians have our covenant, our new covenant, which is about Jesus Christ himself, not so much about the Torah and the the law, you know, the law and the prophets, the new covenant, just like the New Testament, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord. So this, it's very strange how they worded that, but from a historical standpoint, I guess it makes perfect sense. Jesus was a Jew. And after our blessed Lord died and rose again, then the Christians following him, well, they were Christians. They weren't, they weren't Jews anymore. Okay, so let's move on. The community to which Matthew belonged, like many first century Christians, was still part of the larger Jewish community, hence the designation Jewish Christian to describe them. The relationship of Matthew to, to this wider world of Judaism remains a subject of study and contention. The principal question being to what extent, if any, Matthew's community had cut itself off from its Jewish roots. And these are actually still questions that people have. They're kind of unsure how Jewish were the Jewish Christians, how and when the Gentiles came in, did it really cause issues? And, you know, we don't really know all these answers. We're so far removed from there. But we do have documents and things like that that we can try to look into and find more about and you can read more about that with um, there's lots of books on the subject like and um, like this one, which is the Gospel of Matthew in Current Study, Studies in Memory of William G. Thompson. You can check that out. There's lots of good books about these subjects, such as Matthew's Christian Jewish Community, which is from University of Chicago Press. So make sure you check out these books. When you go on Wikipedia to find out more, click uh, hover over these little numbers, then hover over the name and boom, you'll have books that you can go to the library and go and check out and learn more. Okay, moving on. Certainly there was conflict between Matthew's group and other Jewish groups, and it was generally agreed that the root of the conflict was the Matthew community's belief in Jesus as a Messiah and authoritative interpreter of the law as one risen from the dead and uniquely endowed with divine authority, which we absolutely believe 100%. The author wrote for a community of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians located probably in Syria, Antioch, the largest city in Roman Syria, and the third largest in the empire is often mentioned. And this is from Nolan, which is uh, the Gospel of Matthew, a commentary on the Greek text. Lots of good books, lots of sources you can find on Wikipedia. Make sure you go there and click these sources and you're going to find 
great books when you want to learn more. Wikipedia is a good starting point, and that's all this podcast is. This podcast is a starting point for you to go and learn more. It's going to give you a a quick overview of these subjects, tons of subjects I'm going to be covering in short periods of time. Then you can go and read some of the books that I suggest and learn more and more about a particular subject. You can't learn everything. You can listen to this podcast and get a bird's eye view. But to learn more, you have to go and you have to get these books from the library or order them and read them. Okay, moving on. Unlike Mark Math. Unlike Mark, Matthew never bothers to explain Jewish customs since his intended audience was a Jewish one. Unlike Luke, who traces Jesus' ancestry back to Adam, father of the human race, he traces it only to Abraham, father of the Jews. Of his three presumed sources, only M, the material from his own community, refers to a church, Ecclesia, an organized group with rules for keeping order. And the content of M suggests that this community was strict in keeping the Jewish law, holding that they must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees in righteousness. Writing from within a Jewish Christian community, growing increasingly distant from other Jews and becoming increasingly Gentile in its membership and outlook, Matthew put down in his gospel his vision of an assembly or church in which both Jew and Gentile would flourish together. Now, isn't that some interesting history? about the gospel of Matthew. I hope that that helped you learn a little bit more about that. Now we're going to talk about the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. So let's go ahead and click on gospel of Luke and we want to talk about the history of the gospel of Luke because you know what that is. So textual history, uh, let's see, theology, comparison. We will talk about the comparison, but let's go to textual history. Okay. Original copies of Luke and the other Gospels have not been preserved. The texts that survive are third-generation copies with no two completely identical. The earliest witnesses for Luke's Gospel fall into two families with considerable differences between them, the Western and the Alexandrian text type. And the dominant view is that the Western text represents a process of deliberate revision as the variation seems to form specific patterns. The fragment is often cited as the oldest witness, and the fragment uh, is, I guess, a fragment of Luke is an early New Testament papyrus of the Gospel of Luke in Greek. Yeah, it has been dated from the late second century, which is very close to Luke. Second century is 100 something, so it's very close to Luke. Although this dating is disputed, Papyrus 75 is another very early manuscript, late 2nd or early 3rd century, and it includes an attribution of the gospel to Luke. The oldest complete texts are the 4th century Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, both from the Alexandrian family. Codex Beze, a 5th or 6th century Western text type manuscript, contains Luke in Greek and Latin versions on facing pages. And it appears to have descended from an offshoot of the main manuscript tradition, departing from more familiar readings at many points. So we, the history of Luke is, you can look into this, it's very fascinating, is that we have manuscripts that date back to the second century, which is only a few years, would, would only be a few decades after Luke died. So we don't have the original one that Luke wrote, which is very difficult to get originals of anything from 2000 years ago. But we do have copies from just a few decades after Luke would have died. So I find that very interesting that the Gospel of Luke can definitely be relied upon because you can actually compare it with copies that are extremely 
early, second century, which is just a few decades after Luke would have died. So let's move on. So Luke's Acts, uh, the unity, authorship, and date. So we're going to talk about the authorship of the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostle make up a two-volume work, which scholars call Luke-Acts. Together, they account for 27% of the New Testament, the largest contribution by a single author, providing the framework for both the church's liturgical calendar and the historical outline into which later generations have fitted their idea of the story of Jesus. The author is not named in either volume. According to a church tradition first attested by Irenaeus, and we will talk about Irenaeus more when we get to around the year AD 130, uh, but he was a Greek bishop noted for his role in guiding and expanding Christian communities in what is now the south of France. So we're going to talk about him a lot more when we get there. Uh, he, okay, according to Irenaeus, he was the Luke named as a companion of Paul in three of the Pauline letters. But a critical consensus emphasizes the countless contradictions between the account in Acts and the authentic Pauline letters. An example can be seen by comparing Acts accounts of Paul's conversion with Paul's own statement that he remained unknown to Christians in Judea after the events. Luke admired Paul, but his theology was significantly different from Paul's on key points, and he does not represent Paul's views accurately. So if you're comparing uh, the book of Luke, the book of Acts, and Paul and all, and saying, hey, these guys traveled together, and that's how he knows this, some scholars are saying ah, that's not really the case because they have different forms of theology and some of the things don't match up. So Luke could have been a totally different Luke. He he could have been a different Luke than the Luke that traveled with Paul. And remember, back in these days, we had a lot of the same names. Now, and some people might say, well, you get into all this history and you do all this studying and people are kind of debunking this and debunking that. And doesn't that kind of mess with your faith a little bit? And my answer would be, no, it doesn't. Learning more about the history and learning more about the faith and things that might seem questionable and questioning them and studying deeper and finding out more, that makes my faith stronger because I'm not afraid to say, hey, this looks a little bit off, but I know that there's a way to figure out how it works. And maybe Luke isn't the same Luke that traveled with Paul. How does that change my faith? And it, it really doesn't. It was a different Luke, just like there are lots of guys named Paul. There was lots of guys named Peter. There was lots of guys named Jesus, actually. Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord, was not the only Jesus around. There were many, many men named Jesus in that Jewish time and age. So is it confusing or disheartening to learn that Luke might not have been the Luke that traveled with Paul? No, it doesn't matter to me. And at the end of the day, we just don't have any facts. We can't know for sure unless we are by the grace of God traveled back there by some miracle. We teleport back to that time and we see it with our own eyes. Oh, it's Luke traveling with Paul and he's writing the letters. There's really no way for us to know for sure. However, um, like you can believe what you would like to believe when there is no proof there, as long as it's not going to shake your faith and, and make you want to leave the faith because something is hard to understand. Maybe it was Luke that traveled with him. Maybe it wasn't. It's not really important. You know what I mean? So um, Luke was educated, a man of means, probably urban, and someone who respected manual work, although not a worker himself. This is significant because more highbrow writers of the time looked down on the artisans and small business, business people who made up the early church of Paul and were presumably Luke's audience. 
The eclipse of the traditional attribution to Luke, the companion of Paul, has meant that an early date for the gospel is now rarely put forward. Most scholars date the composition of the combined work to around 80 or 90 AD, although some others suggest 90 to 110 AD. And there is textual evidence the conflicts between Western and Alexandrian manuscript families that Luke Acts was still being substantially revised well into the second century. So this is an also another interesting idea that scholars have come up with is that if this Luke wasn't the companion of Paul, then the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts was probably written much later around the year between the years 80 and 100 AD, which is still very close to Jesus' death. So this doesn't really mean anything in is Luke trustworthy or not. First of all, I put my trust in what the church has decided. The church decided through many councils with all the bishops who, who were bishops at the time throughout the world and the Pope that the books we have in the Bible that were in the Vulgate Bible that, that are currently in the Douay Reims Bible and other Catholic Bibles. Now it got changed with the Protestant Reformation, and we'll talk about that when we get there, but the books that are currently in the Catholic Bible were decided upon like around the year 400. And some people say, well, you know, who just gets to decide? Well, God put the church, the bishops of the church in charge. He put the apostles in charge. The apostles put their successors in charge. Those successors decided, hey, these books are going to constitute the Bible. Somebody had to do it because the gospels weren't even all completely written until the apostles, until all the apostles were pretty much dead. The book of Revelation wasn't being finished written. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a few more minutes. So how can we have a Bible when we don't have all the books written yet? So somebody somewhere had to sit down and say, these are the books that belong and these are the ones that don't. One of the big arguments when they were deciding which books belonged in the Bible was if the Shepherd of Hermas, which is one of my favorite uh, books written from this time period, should the Shepherd of Hermas be in the Bible or not? They eventually decided that the Shepherd of Hermas should not be in the Bible because Hermas was not an apostle. And they only used books from a, from apostles or gospels that were specifically about Jesus. So if it's a letter, the letters are from apostles or people who directly knew the apostles. And the gospels are also from people who directly knew the apostles Whereas the Shepherd of Hermas isn't about Jesus directly, it is about Hermas' visions and how he became co closer to Christ and God through those visions. It's not exactly a stor the story of Jesus' life, like a gospel, and it's not exactly about a specific apostle. So Shepherd of Hermas had to go. Who got to decide that? Well, the successors of the apostles had to decide, somebody had to decide. And I trust the church's decision because Jesus put the apostles in charge, the apostles put their successors in charge, and I trust, basically, I trust Jesus at the end of the day. So you don't have to worry about what scholars think. It is important that scholars look into these things, and it's very interesting. I mean, it's, it's a super interesting topic. I love reading about stuff like this, but I wouldn't, like, look into it too much as far as should I believe this or that based on what the scholars say. The scholars aren't trying to save your eternal soul and get you into heaven. The scholars are just, they just, I mean, it's their job. If they're not studying things, if they're not bringing up issues all the time, then they're not getting funding. That's how scholarship works. I know because I was working on my doctorate, 
Of course, I haven't finished it, but you have to, once you get your doctorate, you have to write papers. You have to write like one paper a year, especially if you become a professor. You have to write multiple papers a year, depending on what university you work at. If you're at a research university, you're going to be writing multiple papers in different journals every year. If you're at a, a, a normal university that just teaches and isn't focused on research, then you might still have to write like one paper a year that is going to be submitted to a journal. So you have to come up with stuff like this all the time. Is it interesting? Absolutely. Is it necessary for your eternal salvation? Not at all. What the church decided, the books that should be in the Bible and the, and most Bibles, the new Testament of the Bibles is exactly the same across Protestants, Orthodox Jews and whatever. It's the old Testament. That's a little bit different depending on different traditions. The new Testament, which is a new covenant that we all need. That's the same across Christianity, basically, other than a few Christians, and I'm not going to get into those, but some of the newer sects have changed the Bible, uh, two in particular. I'm not going to get into who they are because I don't really want to talk about that. I'm talking about church history, but almost all Christian denominations agree on the New Testament, the New Covenant, which is the super important part. The Old Testament is important as well, but we differ a lot from even from Orthodox to Catholic. So I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but that's kind of the historical kind of source of Paul and some of the thoughts that scholars have about Paul. So let's move on to the persecution of Christians under Emperor Domitian. The persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire occurred throughout most of the Roman Empire's history, beginning in the first century AD. Originally a polytheist empire in the traditions of Roman paganism and Hellenistic religion, the Christianization of the Roman Empire brought early Christianity into ideological conflict with the imperial cult and the practices of making sacrifices to the deified emperors. Basically, in short, what this means is Christianity didn't gel well with the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was polytheist, meaning they believed in many gods, and one of the gods was the actual emperor. So it's kind of like saying now, well, uh, we can't not say that the president, we cannot call the president a president because it's against our religion. Like a lot of people would be upset about that. Or if we said we can't, we can't salute the flag or we can't have fly an American flag or even look at one because of our religion, people wouldn't really like that. And that's what was going on with Christians. They were pretty much the only people in the empire who couldn't make a sacrifice to other gods and who couldn't respect the emperor as a god. So it caused a lot of problems. Moving on. Um, so deifying an emperor would violate Christianity's prohibition on idolatry, which is just worshiping other gods. Christians were punished for not conforming to officially sanctioned religious norms. In the fourth century, the state church of the Roman Empire began persecutions of Christians considered to be apostates, heretics, or heterodox in doctrine. I don't even know what that, the state church of the Rome, uh, yeah, I don't know. Hold on. Yeah, that, that's a weird comment and they don't have a source for that. So that's one thing you have to look out for on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a great source when they have these little numbers after the sentence and that tells you where they got their information from. This sentence makes no sense at all and I don't know why it's in here. So just ignore that and we're going to move on. Okay, general persecution of Christians in the empire began with the Neronian persecution 
But actually, we want to talk about... No, we, we want to talk about a specific... Per- Here we go, Domitian. I don't want to get into the weed too much with that because you know we're going to talk about all these when we get to those time frames. Okay, according to some historians, Jews and Christians were heavily persecuted toward the end of Domitian's reign. And Domitian was a Roman emperor from 81 to 96 AD. He was the son of Vespasian and the younger brother of Titus, his two predecessors on the throne and the last member of the Flavian dynasty. During his reign, the authoritarian nature of his rule put him at sharp odds with, hold on, put him at sharp odds with the Senate whose powers he drastically curtailed. So let's talk a little bit about what Domitian did. So the book of Revelation, which mentions at least one instance of martyrdom, is thought by to and written during Domitian's reign. Early church historian Eusebius wrote that the social conflict prescribed by Revelation reflects Domitian's organization of excessive and cruel banishments and executions of Christians, but these claims may be exaggerated. I highly doubt it, though. And uh, some historians, however, have maintained that there was little or no anti-Christian activity during Domitian's time, I just I, I don't think that's true because there were so many persecutions throughout this time frame. It really wouldn't make any sense why if if our tradition says that there was why there suddenly wouldn't be. So uh, the lack of consensus by historians about the extent of persecution during the reign of Domitian derives from the fact that while accounts of persecution exist, these accounts are very cursory or their reliability is debated. And don't debaters love debating things? Yes, they do. So when you learn about history, when you read into history, you're going to find a lot of this. One scholar says this, one scholar says that. What you need to do when you're learning about history is take the two most extreme points, try to find yourself a middle point. So you might need to read three different books on the same subject. Once you find that middle point, that's the one that's most likely true. Why? Because you're always going to have an extreme to the left, You're always going to have an extreme to the right, up, down, whatever, however you want to explain it. Left and right is the terms most people use. The one in the middle, that's the one that is going to be the most reliable because it's not going to either or extreme. Some people would say, oh, Domitian just persecuted all Christians all the time. Probably not true. Some people are going to say, well, Domitian didn't persecute anybody. Probably not true. The truth is somewhere in the middle, which is Domitian uh, did some persecutions They probably weren't widespread. They were uh, kind of in a particular time of his reign. They lasted for a short time and they were over. So you can't go far too far one way or too far the other. Okay, so often reference is made to the execution of Flavius Clemens, who was a cousin of Domitian, a Roman consul, and the banishment of his wife, Flavia Domitilla, to the island of Pandateria. Eusebius wrote that Flavia Domitilla was banished because she was a Christian. However, in Cassius Dio's account, and Cassius Dio was a Roman statesman, um, he only reports that she, along with many others, were guilty of sympathy for Judaism, which would actually make sense because a lot of Christians, a lot of Jewish people were Christian at that time. And um, so it would kind of make sense that either maybe she was banished because she was Christian or maybe she was banished because she was sympathetic to Christians or Jews, or both, who knows. Suetonius does not mention the exile at all. According to Caristezes, it is more probable that they were converts to Judaism who attempted to evade payment of the Fiscus Judaicus, which was a tax-collecting agency instituted to collect the tax imposed on Jews in the Roman Empire after the destruction of the temple. So the Jews 
were getting into a lot of trouble. They had the first Roman Jewish war and uh, the Romans destroyed the temple at that time. And then they instituted a tax on the Jews so they wouldn't do a similar thing. Uh, but a lot of people tried to avoid it. So the tax imposed on all persons who practiced Judaism was the Fiscus Judaicus. In any case, no stories of anti-Christian activities during Domitian's reign reference any sort of legal ordinances. So there was probably persecutions that were very limited and weren't written into law. So it was probably like, hey, we don't like those Christians over there. Nobody's going to stop us if we kill them. So let's just get rid of them. So there were other persecutions, such as the Neronian persecution, which I talked about in the last episode. Go check out episode three if you haven't already. And the Neronian persecution was really bad because it was pretty much written into law. And a lot of Christians were killed because they were blamed for the uh, fire, the great fire of Rome, which I talked about in episode three. So I'm going to do a lot of callbacks to other episodes Make sure you check those out as well, because there's a lot of history to cover. Moving on, and we're going to wrap up real soon. We have the book of Revelation, which was written around the year 95. Let's talk a little bit about the historicity of the book of Revelation. Let's see. Ta -da -do, do -do -do -do. Structure and content, interpretation. I think I need to go to canonical history history let's see no sources genre here we go okay the name revelation comes from the first word of the book in coin greek which means unveiling or revelation the author names himself as john but modern scholars consider it unlikely that the author of revelation also wrote the gospel of john this is another thing that i find very fascinating that there were two johns hanging around with Jesus. It could have been the Apostle John, or it could have been another John who was called John, um, I don't remember what he was called, John the Presbyter or something like that. Anyway, uh, John was a Jewish Christian prophet, probably belonging to a group of such prophets, and was accepted by the congregations to whom he addresses his letter. The book is commonly dated to about 95 AD. Now, if you believe the the Gospel of John and the Revelation and the letters of John were all written by the same person. That's perfectly fine. If you don't, that's fine, too. It doesn't change the content of the books, which we know to be holy because the church proclaimed them to be such when they selected them and put them in the Bible. And like I said, Jesus put the apostles in charge. The apostles put successors in charge and those successors decided which books would be in the New Testament. Of course, not on their own with the help of the Holy Spirit with our blessed Lord guiding them. But unless Jesus wanted to do a miracle and, you know, kind of snap his fingers and have the Bible just all together, he needed people to guide them into making the right choices to put the Bible together. And that's what he decided to do. I don't know why, but whoever wrote the books is not really relevant. What's relevant is that they are inspired by God and they are, can help us get into heaven. But I do think it is interesting to read about these different things of people wondering who wrote what. And it's very interesting, but it's not uh, necessary for salvation. I should say that. 
Okay, the book of Revelation is commonly dated to about 95 AD, as suggested by clues in the visions pointing to the reign of the emperor Domitian, which we just talked about, remember? The beast with seven heads and the number 666 seem to allude directly to the emperor Nero, who reigned from AD 54 to 68. But this does not require that Revelation was written in the 60s, as there was a widespread belief in later decades that Nero would return. And the genre of Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy with an epistolary introduction addressed to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. Apocalypse means the revealing of divine mysteries. John is to write down what is revealed, what he sees in his vision, and send it to the seven churches. The entire book constitutes the letter. The letters to the seven individual churches are introductions to the rest of the book which is addressed to all seven. While the dominant genre is apocalyptic, the author sees himself as a Christian prophet. Revelation uses the word in various forms 21 times more than any other New Testament book. Isn't that interesting to know? The word prophet is used 21 times in the book of Revelation, more than any other New Testament book. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. So that was the year... 95 when the book of revelation was written or we assume it was written around that time now let's talk about the year 96 with the traditional date of the first epistle of clement which is attributed to pope clement the first and he wrote that to the church in corinth and this is going to be and then we have two things and then we're going to do a wrap up and then we'll be done okay the first epistle of clement uh which is called clement to the corinthians is a letter addressed to the christians in the city of corinth Based on internal evidence, the letter was com composed sometime before A.D. 70. The common time given for the epistle's com composition is at the end of the reign of Domitian. Remember, we just talked about him. And A.D. 140, most likely around A.D. 96, it ranks with the Didache as one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of extant Christian documents outside the canonical New Testament. So a lot of people think that or, or some atheists and other people who are against Christianity will say, well, you don't even have any proof outside of the Bible of the historicity of Jesus and the apostles and all these people. They were all figments of your imagination. None of it was real because you only have the Bible to point to. Well, that's not true. We actually have the Didache, which is not a part of the Bible. We have the first epistle of Clement, which is also not a part of the Bible, but very good read. If you have the time, check out the first epistle of Clement. It's online for free. Just Type it in the search bar and boom, you'll be able to read it for free. It's a great read. And it tells you about some of the goings on of the church that you wouldn't be aware of because the Bible is more specifically, very specifically about Jesus and the relationship with Jesus. Whereas the first epistle, excuse me, the first epistle of Clement is specifically talking to people in the churches and telling them kind of, what they should do and how they should act and things like that. Sometimes with very mundane things that you wouldn't think that things that aren't in the Bible because they don't need to be. So check out the first epistle of Clement, check out the Didache when you get a chance. These things were written around the same time, sometimes earlier than the New Testament, other New Testament letters and gospel. Okay, so as the name suggests, a second epistle of Clement is known, but this is a later work by a different author. Neither one nor two Clement are part of the canonical New Testament, but they are part of the Apostolic Fathers' conditions. We're going to talk about the Apostolic Fathers more, but basically the Apostolic Fathers were core Christian theologians among the church fathers who lived in the first and second centuries AD. So we've already talked about some of them. 
Um, and Clement is one specifically. And we also have Hermas, who is another apostolic father. <clears throat> okay, so a letter is a response to the to events in Corinth where the congregation had deposed certain elders, presbyters, which is another word for priests. The author called on the congregation to repent, to restore the priests to their position and to obey their superiors. He said that the apostles had appointed the church leadership and directed them on how to perpetuate the ministry. The work is attributed to Clement first the bishop of rome in corinth the letter was read aloud from time to time this practice spread to other churches and christians translated the greek work into latin syriac and other languages some early christians even treated the work like scripture the work was lost for centuries but since the 1600s various copies or fragments have been found and studied it has provided valuable evidence about the structure of the early church so if you want to learn about the structure of the early church go read the first epistle of Clement. Very important. Check it out. Our last topic today is St. John, the last of the apostles dying in Ephesus. Very sad. Um, and around this time, also the gospel of John was completed. But let's talk about St. John dying. We know about the gospel of John. So we don't have to talk about that too much. Okay, so identity doo -doo -doo -doo, authorship we could talk about the authorship a little bit but we're not going to get into that let's see um we actually don't have much to talk about the death of john so that's interesting hmm yep we don't really have any information about the death of john so on wikipedia but it is known that um, he died in Ephesus around 100 AD. And I guess we can go to the Catholic Encyclopedia to find more information about that. Let's take a look. Catholic Encyclopedia. The later accounts of John, Feast of St. John. Hmm. Uh, la, 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 la. More of the apocalypse tells us, yada, yada, yada. John of Palestine. Hmm. Later accounts of John. Apocryphacts of John. Hmm. Okay, so I don't even know where they got that information. But yeah, St. John died in Ephesus around 100 AD. And that's pretty much the end of today's show. We have reached our hour point, And I don't want to be going on too long with these an hour is long enough once a week so let's do a quick recap and talk about what we can learn so first of all we started with ad 72 the martyrdom of saint thomas and saint thomas was martyred uh, of course for teaching the faith and he started churches in india yep so saint thomas gave up his life for Jesus Christ and to spread the faith. We're not asked to do that exactly anymore. Some people are in some countries, but in America, in Europe, in North America, people aren't really asked at this time. Things could change, but people aren't really asked to give up their life for the faith. But you are asked to give up a lot. We are asked to give up a lot and people don't want to. We're asked to give up comfortable things, things that other people in the secular world can do that we shouldn't do. 
And I could talk about some of those things, but the show is already going really long, so I'm not going to get into that. The point I want to make is how do we become holier based on the martyrdom of St. Thomas? We will be martyred in different ways. There's a red martyrdom and a white martyrdom. Red martyrdom is when you actually get killed. White martyrdom is when you're being killed slowly by little tiny things that you have to do every day to stay faithful to Christ that other people don't have to, that secular people don't have to. For example, you could, like, we're not supposed to um, do certain things um, that other secular people can do. And I'm, I, I'm drawing a blank on a specific example, but let's say we're supposed to love our neighbors. Secular people, they don't specifically have to worry about that. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. Secular people specifically don't have to worry about that. So if you have a boss that really bothers you all the time, you're supposed to stop and pray for that person and not just curse at them and mumble under your breath and gossip about them. That's another thing. Christians are not supposed to gossip. Well, keep it up. Gabby after hours. Uh, yeah, I'll check out Gabby after hours. Thanks for the recommendation. Somebody left a comment. Appreciate it. Um, I got sidetracked a little bit. <laughs> a live stream comment. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, what we're supposed to do is um, take this white martyrdom <clears throat> of simple things like praying for people who we don't like and live with that. And there's little tiny things like that that we're going to have to deal with. We should be prepared for that. That's what we can learn from the martyrdom of St. Thomas. Same with Pope Linus. Gospel of Matthew being completed. What can we learn about this? Well, Gospel of Matthew, Luke, and Mark all kind of borrowed from each other. So we know that the Holy Spirit works in mysterious ways and that the Holy Spirit really guides the church and guides us. So how can we become holier based on knowing that the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and Mark, the Synoptic Gospels, have very similar structures and a lot of borrowed material? Well, what we can learn is that we don't have to come up with new things to make something beautiful, to make something amazing that can really help other people and bring them to the faith. I'm not making anything new here. I'm reading articles off of Wikipedia, but hey, nobody is going around and reading these Christian articles for you to listen to and to learn from. So I'm taking, I'm utilizing the Holy Spirit to help me to take something old and refresh it, repackage it so that a specific audience, people who like podcasts, who like listening to things, can learn without having to read all this information. So what? how can you become holier? Look around and see what things that God has given you already that you're attracted to and see how you can repackage that to evangelize and to help someone. Maybe you like, I don't know, writing songs. You can take a psalm or a, a words from the gospel and write a song about that. Lots of people do that. Maybe you can do like I'm doing. Go on Wikipedia and read some of these articles so that people who are not big readers can just sit there and listen and learn instead. I mean, there's so many different things you can do and that the Holy Spirit can guide you to. So pray to the Holy Spirit that you can know what God wants you to do and how you can move forward and evangelize people uh, by not exactly creating something new. You don't have to be very creative. You just have to let the Holy Spirit guide you. So that's what we can learn from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are synoptic and borrow a lot from each other. Um, then the book of Revelation was written around this time. And what can we learn from the book of Revelation? It, the, the book of Revelation really talks about these visions that John had. And we could pray for visions from God, too. We could pray to be holier that way. 
But the truth is, how do we become holier based on this, the book of Revelation? Well, we have the book of Revelation to read. We don't need these visions. We don't need special things from God. God gave us already him. We can commune with him every day if we so desire. He is there in the churches. He said where two are gathered in his name, he's there. Also, if you're Catholic or Orthodox uh, or, or Eastern Catholic, then you believe that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist. So his body, blood, soul, and divinity is really physically actually there. And you can go and physically commune with Jesus, physically pray with Jesus in the room with you right there. So what the book of Revelation is great to be able to have a vision of Jesus, but we have Jesus. We have him here with us whenever we need him. So don't forget that. That's one way to become holier, of course. Uh, the first epistle of Clement. What can we learn from the first epistle of Clement to become holier? Well, go read it. One of the things we can learn, though, other than just going and reading it, is about that there was an early church and they had ways that they did things. And it, it's not a mystery. The documents are out there. They're just not all in the Bible. So go check out the first epistle of Clement if you want to learn more about that. But we we can know that God gave us history to learn from these things to become holier if we read these things and we try to understand them for ourselves. And then we have St. John dying and the Gospel of John being completed. And what can we learn from that? Well, we can learn lots of things from the Gospels and we can, and we can learn lots of things from the Apostles. The Apostles dying doesn't mean that the church ended. The, the Apostles left their successors so what can we learn from that? We, we need to know that there is a hierarchy in the church and Jesus left that there for us. And we should respect that as much as we can. There are people who are put in charge and who, who can trace their authority all the way back to one of the apostles if you really want to go and do the research. And that's awesome. I think that's a beautiful thing. And if you are not Catholic or Orthodox, you should talk to a Catholic priest or an Orthodox priest or Eastern Catholic priest. And ask them, hey, can I see your, you know, trace your lineage all the way back to the one of the apostles? Because I just think that would be very interesting. And just talk to them about how they feel to have that kind of lineage and what does it really mean to them. If you're a Protestant, just go and talk to a priest. Talk to somebody who has had that experience in their life. I think it would be very eye-opening for you. Not saying you have to go and convert right now, but why not? Why not go and talk to them and kind of get an idea of what they believe about the lineage and about, you know, the succession from the apostles. Just because you don't believe the same thing doesn't mean that you can't learn more about it. I've learned about very many different denominations, lots of different religions as well. It doesn't make me any less Catholic. I mean, I know tons about Buddhism. I know about Hinduism. I know about New Age. I know a lot. It, and it just gives me more confidence in my own religion, which is the Catholic faith. So that's it for today. I hope that through these history lessons, you can become much holier. We'll be back next Saturday with episode five. And in episode five, we're going to be talking about the year 110 with Ignatius of Antioch up into about the year maybe 170. So from 110 to 170 in the next episode, hope to catch you then. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. I forgot to say that. Like, share, and subscribe. That'll really help me out if you've hung here for an hour long. 
Um, also go to my website, sdkason.com slash subscribe. Link is in the description. Unless you're already on my website, then that's a different story. Uh, but if you're not on my website, go there, subscribe, and you'll get email updates just in case there's any problems with YouTube or Facebook or whoever, and they want to shut people down or block them or whatever. Who knows what could happen? Uh, go ahead and subscribe to the email list. Then you'll always be able to be in contact with me and see about the new stuff I'm making. And that's it. Until next time, stay holy, my friends. We're going to close out with an Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Thanks, everybody, for checking out the timeline of church history. I will see you next Saturday, and you can check out the older episodes at my website, sdkason.com. Click the History tab, and you will see the first three episodes there. Thank you, and God bless. Until next time, stay holy, my friends. Peace out.